Welcome to the show. Pete Callender here on News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Whoa. Did something just happen there? Was that my mic or did I just get closer and now I can hear myself? Anyway, um, welcome to the show. So not very good uh, numbers here in the morning consult for uh, the president. And I only bring this up. I'm not a big um, polling guy. I don't like look at the polls and I'm not like, oh, my gosh, the poll says that, you know, this guy's not doing well. And so therefore all is lost or anything like that. Polls are just a snapshot. The most important uh, piece of information in any poll is who did it. Yeah, who did it, who paid for it. That's the most important piece of information usually. And uh, the morning consult is usually pretty good numbers. And I prefer to look at trends. So you get a whole bunch of polling and you can see if people are moving, right? If the country is moving in a certain direction or a population is moving um, in a certain direction, that's a far better, I think, and more impactful piece of information than uh, where you know everybody is at any given moment, plus or minus three to five percent. And you always got to keep that in mind too when you're looking at polling, because a plus or minus three percent, it could basically you know undermine the entire headline. You know, usually media puts out these polls and they drive a news story, right? That's the whole point. I do wonder a lot of times, like if you go out and you, your media organization and you put a poll out into the field and it comes back and it's, you know, not ideal. It's not the story you want to tell. <laughs> so do you just not do anything with it? I'm sure there are occasions like that. Um, but the morning consult numbers are, they're, they're pretty solid and um, they are a trend. So you can actually monitor this over a long period of time. And the morning consult numbers right now for President Biden are really, really bad. <laughs> they're, they're really bad. Um, 51-39, disapprove. So 51% disapprove of the job he is doing on the economy. And 47% disapprove of the job he is doing on the jobs. And again, keep in mind that on a 47-43 split, you got a plus or minus in there, and so uh, that it's essentially tied. So like half of America thinks he's not doing a good job on jobs, and more than half of America thinks that he is not doing a good job on the economy in general. And if you, well... Okay, well, I was going to open that up, but the, uh, the Wi-Fi is apparently very, very... Now, oh, it's now down to just a dot. It's not even a bar. It's just like a dot. Okay, so I can't, I can't tell you that. Uh, I can't go into those numbers right now, but the, um, this polling aligns with the House Democratic campaign chief warning that went to Democrats in Congress the other day. Representative Sean Patrick Maloney... Um, is the, uh, what is he, the, the House Democrats campaign chief. And uh, with the DCCC, like he's the House member that's, you know, in charge of the uh, DCCC, which is the Democratic Congressional um, Campaign Committee. And these guys are uh, the ones in charge of getting more Democrats elected in the House. Well, Sean Patrick Maloney has a closed-door lunch last week with some of the most vulnerable incumbents in the House. And his message was that if the 
midterms were held now, which they are not, but if they were held right now, we still have, you know, a year and a half to go, but if they were held right now, they would lose the majority. And this, according to Politico, this bleak forecast was confirmed by multiple people familiar with the conversation. Um, This is new polling that showed Democrats falling behind Republicans by a half dozen points on a generic ballot in battleground districts. So key pieces of information here. You're down six points. That's that's going to be outside of a margin of error. I mean, any really like any believable poll is going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of about three, three and a half percent. I've seen some that go up as high as almost five. Anything more than five percent, it's kind of like, what's the point? Because if it's, I mean, think about that, right? If it's a five percentage point swing either direction, <laughs> you're basically going to be, yeah, uh, you add it together. Like if I'm running against you and I'm up by five percentage points, and uh, the plus or minus is five, well, that means we could be tied too, or you could be winning by five. It doesn't tell you anything, right? Unless it's like a blowout, then it will tell you it's going to be a blowout. But other than that. Not very helpful. So usually you want to see, you're not going to want to believe any polling that you see that's got anything more than like a five percentage point um, margin of error. Anyway, this is six points. That's beyond any kind of believable margin of error here. And that's the first piece of information. The other piece of information is that this is a generic ballot, which means what? That there uh, there's no accounting for the actual candidates. And that is important. Candidates matter. Candidates matter. You will hear me say this in every election. The candidate matters. You can have a really great candidate in a really bad uh, cycle for that candidate's party and they will overperform. Right. It it does happen. So the candidate matters. Uh, And then the other thing is that these are battleground districts. So these are areas. These are districts in, in the House, in Congress that are up for grabs and a six point margin that Democrats are down by is huge. Huge. That is not good. <laughs> that is not good at all. Tim Perseco. Oh, I love his uh his champagne kind of wine. No, Perseco is his name. He's the executive director of the DCCC. And uh he says that uh this is this is actually good news. There is some good news here. <laughs> He's saying here's the good news. Everything we are doing and everything that we have talked about doing is incredibly popular. That's the good news. He, <laughs> he's down. They're down six points in a generic poll in battleground districts. And he's like, no, no, no. Everything we're doing is fantastic. It's super popular. And uh, but uh, yeah, it's but it's also not good. <laughs> VH1. They play this video all the time. This is a great video. We were not allowed to have MTV or cable for that matter as kids. Mom said no. So she's so proud of the story too. Even to this day, she's very proud of the story where. Something went wrong with the television. And it was one of those big, 
uh, you know, the the tube, the you know, the tube TVs, right? Sat on the floor. Right? It had like the fake wood around it and everything. And um, this thing, something happened to it or whatever. And the cable or the TV repairman comes, he fixes it, and he's like, uh, "All right, where's your where's your cable?" And she's like, "I don't have cable." And he laughs and he's like, "No, really, where's your cable?" And she's like, "No, really, I don't have. We don't have cable here." And she's and, and the guy just looked at her and he's like, "You got four teenagers, you don't have cable." And she's like, "No, I do not." <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, but we could watch VH1. It was on what's the other dial there? It's like the UHF or something, and it's like that would kind of come in, and you could kind of see, like it was all fuzzy and. I think there may have been like a line through the channel as well or something. And it was, and it would like, it would like roll very slowly, you know, like the screen would just roll, but you could make it out. And so that aha video was like always on. <laughs> uh, anyway, so I've got the, uh, yeah, the internet is now uh, back up. I don't know what happened, but it's a uh, backup. It might've been my laptop here, but the independent voters that the morning consult poll looks at, then they asked them, you know, what is your approval, disapproval of Joe Biden on a number of issues um, and think and think about the context here. Matt Whitlock points this out. Matt Whitlock, uh, he was the former comms guy for the National Republican Senatorial Committee. So he's a GOP comms guy for elections, right? And I think he's a private consultant now, uh, or you know, a political consultant rather. And he says these numbers are brutal. Biden spent two trillion dollars on stimulus, so he could tout jobs. And he could tout the economy. And yet when you look at jobs and you look at the economy, he's underwater. He's you got 51 percent disapproval after he just spent two trillion dollars that we don't have. And he's going to spend two trillion. What more to get higher numbers? Like, where does this end? This is a terrible precedent. But interestingly enough, the economy He's underwater. He's at 51% disapproval on that. But gun policy, he's also at 51% disapproval. And his approval numbers for gun policy are even lower than the economy approval numbers. The worst numbers that he has, you want to take a guess what area he's got the worst numbers in? It's not the economy. It's not gun policy. It's not jobs. It's not national security, although he's underwater on that one, too. It's not energy, although he's underwater on that one as well. It's not coronavirus, where he actually has a bit of an of an edge in approval versus disapproval. He's at 50% approval, 43% disapproval, 7% undecided. They don't know, no opinion. The number one area, the number one topic, the issue that he is most underwater on at 54% disapproval, immigration. Immigration. Gee, I wonder why. <laughs> Is there something going on with immigration that might lead to some poor polling for the president? I don't, I'm not sure. Uh, you got 54% disapprove of his handling of the immigration issue, 30% approve. So 54 to 30, and then the remainder of that 15%, um, they have no opinion. Which, how do you not have? I'm always curious about these people <laughs> that have no opinion. Like, how do you have no opinion on the immigration Topic. Maybe they just don't want to say. I don't know. Uh, but those are terrible, terrible numbers. Now, over on the House congressional side, where they, you know, what's the um, what's the Democrat majority over there? It's like 
is it like one seat? <laughs> it's very small. It's like a it's like a dozen seats, right? So it's very small. They need every Democrat to be on board to get anything done, which is why you know they're not getting anything done. Thank goodness. Um, and now they're they're looking at polling that shows they are in serious trouble. Sean Patrick Maloney gave his uh, fellow Democrats in the House gave them an update on some of the numbers the other day and. Uh, bleak is used to describe it. Uh, uh, Maloney's omen of defeat is how it's <laughs> being phrased was hardly a surprise to the Democrats in these battleground districts. Some of these people, they've been sounding the alarm for weeks that the party's messaging, particularly on the economy, needs a reboot. Now, This is interesting to me and kind of hilarious in an ironic way because Joe Biden would very much like to be able to run on the economy. And why is that? Like of all the issues that are out there, why would you want to run on the economy? Right. Because like this goes to the old, you know, uh, was it uh, the Clintonian, the war room of the Clinton campaign? Like it's the economy, stupid. Right. So there's that. And it's kind of ironic because Mitt Romney in 2012, tried to run against Obama based on Obama's terrible economy. In 2012, when Obama was up for re-election, no president had ever won re-election with economic numbers as bad as the numbers Obama had. The Romney campaign knew it. The Obama campaign knew it. Everybody knew it. And so every time... Mitt Romney went out on the campaign trail at his stump speeches and such. What would he talk about? Well, he would talk about the economy, of course, because it's the economy, stupid, right? So he would talk about how the bad economy is impacting everybody, and you know this. You don't need me to tell you that. Terrible economy. Blame Obama. Put me in place. I'm a business guy. I turn businesses around. This is what I do. Both for me, bad economy for him, right? He could never get the messaging to, uh, to work through the mainstream media outlets, though. And he and his campaign talked about this after the fact. Uh, They said, like, we were out there, we were campaigning hard on the economy, and nobody ever, the messaging never broke through. What did we get? We got, uh, you know, binders of women. We got he wants to kill Big Bird. We got the haircut. We got the dog on top of the car. We got the 57%. That's what we got, right? That was the main focus of the mainstream media, and it, it convinced me of this point. Elections are about what media make them. I'll get into this up next. But first, let's check on news with Mark Muller. Does not sound like Michael Bublé at all. Because it's not. But if you're listening, at some point in the program today... We're going to play a Michael Buble song, and when we do, you can win a pair of tickets to an evening with Michael Buble. And that would be on August 17th, 8 p.m. at the Spectrum Center in Charlotte. Do not call now. There's no reason to call now, because we're not giving the tickets away right now, because that was not a Michael Buble song. And if you thought that was a Michael Buble song, then you probably shouldn't be trying to win the tickets. Um, which we are not giving away right now. Okay. So uh, I mentioned before uh, the news that uh, elections are about what media make them. This is the lesson I learned out of 2012. I try to 
you know, I try to take away a lesson from every election cycle. And uh, like, for example, 2016, I quit making predictions about electoral outcomes. I quit believing in individual polls. And uh, I just said, you know what? I'm going to wait and I'm going to see who wins. And that's going to be it. I'm just going to do that. Like, because honestly, who cares if I predicted the outcome? Who cares? After the race is over, after the election is held, somebody wins, somebody loses. And uh, whether or not I predicted it correctly doesn't really matter. Because basically it's a 50-50 guess. Right? So, and okay, yes. And I was wrong. I was very, very wrong. I thought Hillary Clinton was going to win. Well, because the polling told me that. And so I believed it. And so then after 2016, I'm like, I'm not believing this anymore. And I'm not going to make any predictions on this stuff anymore. So that was my lesson from 2016. Um, But 2012, it was elections are about what media make them. Because Mitt Romney's campaign wanted to talk about the economy because no president had ever won re-election like Obama uh, had um, in 2012. But no president, sitting president, ever won again re-election with an economy that was as bad according to the numbers, as Obama's economy was at that time. And yet nobody focused on it. And you can see it happen. Now that you're aware, if you weren't before, right, now that you're aware, you can actually watch it occur. Here's another example of it. Um, The 2016 race for governor of North Carolina, Pat McCrory and Roy Cooper. What was that election about? HB2, right? It was about HB2 because Roy Cooper wanted it to be about HB2, and so did the media. Every story about that race had something to do or at least a mention of HB2. Very little attention was paid to the North Mech toll road issue. And I can tell you, working out west, western North Carolina, around in Asheville, uh, people, the only reason folks knew anything about that out there was because I would talk about it because I used to work here. So I was aware of this issue. I was aware of the toll roads. I was aware of the, uh, you know, the, the, the games, shall we say, the fakery that was going on where outside groups came in and pretended to be all about toll roads but actually were about getting Democrats elected. That was the point. They're like, oh, we care about roads. We're the Good Roads Coalition or some garbage like that. And no, it was actually a pack for the Democrats. And they just pushed and pushed on that toll road issue. And... People in that area blamed Pat McCrory for it. And that swing in North Mech was enough to cost him re-election. Right? So there was that. And now, but media out in Western North Carolina, they didn't know anything about that issue. They weren't following. I mean, and I don't blame them for that. There, there aren't a lot of media outlets out there. And um, they're, you know, they're, they're not aware of that really local issue. And you only kind of knew about it after the fact. And you can kind of look at the numbers, see the swing. And you can identify there's a massive movement in McCrory's support to Cooper's support in that area. And you can make a, you know, an estimation that that was due to this toll road issue, which was really stupid, by the way. I mean, I just I feel the need as someone who, whoa, the clown horn or something over there, car horn sounded like um, the it was really something something for everyone else in the rest of the state. I just want to say just really, really bad move, guys. <laughs> just a terrible move. You got his Cooper. You gave us Cooper for that. And what did Cooper do? Didn't he put the guy in charge of the toll road project? Didn't he put that guy in charge of the entire DOT? 
And I think the toll road's still happening, right? So, I mean, really bang up work. Thanks for that. <laughs> but, uh, but that's what the media wanted the election to be about was HB2. So every single uh, campaign stop or Q&A and interview that McCrory sits for, what does he get asked about? He gets asked about HB2. He rarely, if ever, gets asked about the toll road deal, right? Rarely did he get asked about that. Yet, there was a massive movement of voters away from him at that time in that area over that issue. So this is what I mean. Elections are about what meaning make them. So are we going to have an election this time around about the economy? Well, we shall see, you know, in another two years or so, if Joe Biden makes it that long, um, if he's going to run for re-election, we shall see. But the first thing that has to happen is the midterms. And there are a whole bunch of headwinds against Democrats in this midterm election cycle. Number one, historically, the party that controls the White House loses seats in the House in the in that midterm election. That's generally what happens. That's the historical record. I don't know if it's going to happen again. Remember, I just said I don't make predictions. All I'm saying is that historically speaking, that has happened in the past. And so Democrats are aware of this. Republicans are aware of this. They already have Democrats already have just a very, very slim majority. And they have a lot of seats then that they have to defend because Republicans lost them last time. These are swing districts. You also have redistricting, the drawing of the maps, which I thought this was interesting. There was, uh, uh, where was she out of New York? Was she out of New York? There was some Democratic lawmaker who was giving some, you know, Zoom call interview, whatever, with uh, some outlet And she basically says, like, we're going to be relying on New York and Illinois to be uh, getting creative with the redistricting. In other words, to gerrymander, she the Democrats are going to need Democrat controlled states to gerrymander their districts in order to try to get as many seats as possible and keep Republicans out of as many seats as possible if they're going to try to um, withstand the historical you know, the historical trend of losing seats in the um, in the next election cycle. So you got that against them. You got the historical trend. You got the redistricting going on. And you've got a bad economy. People do not like Biden's handling of the economy. You've got the immigration issue as well. And you also have the defund the police slash rising crime story. And Democrats have been doing their best to try to distance themselves from this awful, horrible, terrible, no good slogan, (laughs) defund the police. Apparently, Congresswoman Cori Bush did not get the memo. We'll take a listen (laughs) to what she told uh, the folks at CBS up next. First, we're going to check on traffic. Here is Boomer Von Cannon. Congresswoman Cori Bush. Appearing on uh, CBS, I don't know what show, it doesn't matter, um, asked about her efforts to transform policing. Before we let you go, let me ask you about something else um, aside from the moratorium. Uh, You faced some criticism in recent weeks over your push to uh, defund the police. Um, (laughs) Campaign records show that you spent roughly $70,000 on on private security, and some critics say um, that move is hypocritical. Um, What's your response to those critics? They would rather I die? You would rather me die? Is that what you want to see? Oh, my. You want to see me die? 
You know, oh because that could be the alternative. So either I spend $70,000 on private security over the last few months, and I'm here standing, here standing now and able to speak, able to help save 11 million people from being evicted, or I could possibly have a death attempt on my life. And we're also talking about the same exact people who say horrible things about me, who lie to get to, to build up their base. And then because they lie about me, I receive death threats. Mm. Now they don't address the fact that I receive death threats after they go on air and say horrible things about me. But then they want to say, oh, but she wants, she needs private security. I have private security because my body is worth being on this planet right now. I have private security because they, the white supremacist, racist narrative that they drive into this country, the fact that they don't care that this black woman that has put her life on the line, they can't match my energy, first of all. This black what? woman who's, who who's puts her life on the line, they don't care that, my, that I could be taken out of here. They actually probably are okay with that. But this is the thing. I won't let them get that off. You can't get that off. I'm going to make sure I have security because I know I have had attempts on my life and I have too much work to do. There are too many people that need help right now for me to, to allow that. So if I end up spending 200000 If I spend 10, 10, 10 more dollars on it, you know what? I get to be here to do the work. So suck it up and defunding the police has to happen. <laughs> we need to defund the police and put that money into social safety nets because we're trying to save lives. What other, what other occupation can do work that's out of their scope and still be propped up to do work that's out of their scope. As a nurse, I can't be the surgeon too. I don't know. Right, right. That's good. I don't understand where she goes from there. But do you do you do you see the or hear the disconnect there? She needs the seventy thousand dollars worth of private security, and that's why we need to defund the police. She see she's worth the seventy k. You probably not. She is because she's doing the work. You know, that's what it's all about is doing the work, the work. This is a common refrain that you hear uh, um, uh, among the progressive left, you know, that you got to put in the work. You got to do the work because it makes it sound like it's like, oh, my gosh, it's so much stuff. Like thinking about these things and giving these speeches, it's so much work, so much work because, you know, otherwise it's kind of like. What do you do all day? Except like just talk about race and <laughs> right? No, people say it to me too. Um, I'm doing the work here from 12 to three. I do the work. And this is a common argument you hear from people like um, what's the dude in Venezuela, Maduro, where he got caught on the video doing the, the big like day long speech and what he thought was a commercial break or something. He, well, what am I kidding? They don't have commercial breaks. It's socialist. Anyway, so they, uh, they they break away and they show like some video of him, you know, feeding the starving people of his country. Oh, I, who am I kidding? Like nobody's starving in Venezuela, right? But during this break, he thinks he's off camera, but apparently he wasn't. And he leans over and he just starts chowing down on some burrito that he's got stashed in his desk drawer. <laughs> I'm not kidding. He literally leans over and pulls out this burrito and just starts chowing down on it. And, uh, and everybody sees it. And of course they're all out there like, you know, murdering pigeons for food, for protein, you know? So this is kind of the same thing. The people who are in charge, they always get the services that are required for people of their stature, right? Like, surely I'm in charge here. Like, you couldn't 
you couldn't govern yourselves without me. So I obviously have to, you know, eat all of the food in the entire country. You don't get any. I have to eat it all because I got to keep up my strength. Surely I'm more important than you. You know, some animals are more equal than others, you might say. And so that's this is the line of argument that uh, that Cori Bush is using. She needs the private security because she. Uh, this was news to me, though. She's apparently had uh, attempts on her life. They've attempted to assassinate her. I was unaware that this occurred. And I follow the news pretty closely. I've not seen any reporting that someone has actually tried to murder Congresswoman Cori Bush. I've not seen that. But she says that's the case, so that's why she needs to spend 70000 or 200000 And then she starts going, that, that if it sounded weird, it, it was. She almost said $10 million. That's what it sounded like to me. She was going like, whether it's 70000 or 200000 if I have to spend ten, mm, and she she almost said million. <laughs> she said ten, mm, and then she kind of backed up and then said ten more. Like ten more dollars? That doesn't make any sense. But she was going up. She was ratcheting up the cost. Like, no price is too great. That was her argument. No price is too great to protect my life. As I make the argument to dismantle police departments around America. <laughs> this is her argument. And she apparently does not see any kind of conflict or contradiction in this assertion. You got to think, though, that the Democratic Party, not too happy with this interview. Not that she cares, I think. She's part of the uh, the squad, right? She's part of the, the socialist wing of the Democratic Party. And so she's... I don't think she cares what the Democratic Party thinks about her using the defund the police language again. It's just a terrible slogan. Polls very, very low. People of all demographics not on board with this concept. Only the most rabid of the leftists are. And uh, this is actually one of the problems that they're going to have in the midterm election because she's going to be up for reelection. And she's going to be making these arguments, as are other progressive Democrats. They're going to be making these arguments. Party leaders, they're wanting to focus on topics that they think are more advantageous to them, which are the economy and jobs. Of course, with the polling that I just mentioned earlier, that's not looking so great either for them. Party leaders, according to Politico, are stepping up their offense in response to the growing agita. A Democratic messaging blitz this month on Biden's priorities is set to get help from a White House communications war room that will activate like the Wonder Twins while members are back in their districts around the country. Biden's cabinet is being dispatched to talk up jobs and infrastructure in swing districts in states such as Iowa, New York and New Jersey for now. It's too early to say that Democrats have no path to keeping their majority. (laughs) It's too early to say they're totally done. Way too early. But they would need a lot of factors to break in their favor in order to hang on next November. See, this is, it's a year and a half away. For now, both parties remain neck and neck on fundraising, and the new congressional maps, which could largely determine Democrats' fate, are still months out. So there are, in my estimation... Three different reasons why you would leak this story out to Politico, because that's how they got this story. Right? There were people that said, "Hey, we saw these these numbers, this polling, and uh, 
here you go, Politico, you can have it. And then it got confirmed with other sources. So why would Democrats put this out? We'll go over that up next. First, check on the news on News Talk 1110 and 99.3 WBT. This sounds like a Bublé song. Yeah. This is Michael Bublé. And so if you are right now the 11th caller to 704-570-1110, you will score a pair of tickets to see Mr. Bublé on August 17th, 8 p.m. Spectrum Center here in Charlotte. Good Good luck. <laughs> Uh, 704-570-1110, 11th caller wins the pair of the tickets. And if you don't win today, don't worry. You got, you'll have a shot tomorrow, but that'll be the last shot uh, on the show. And I'm not telling you what hour we're going to give away the tickets, but you do have another chance to win during tomorrow's show. Um, so party leaders, Democratic Party leaders, are already stepping up their offense, according to the Politico article on this. Um, Democratic messaging, uh, they've been blitzing the airwaves, they set up their communications war room. Uh, they are uh, they're going into you know swing districts and swing states, but specifically districts to talk up jobs and infrastructure in the districts like in Iowa and New Jersey and New York. And uh, Tim Perseco or Persico, Persico, he says, "Don't worry. This terrible polling that shows we are down six points in a generic poll. That's this is." That's a lot. You're down six points. This is like catastrophic. You're down six points in a generic poll, which means you don't know who the candidates are. And I understand it's still a year and a half out. But this has Democrats very, very, very concerned. But Tim Persico says, don't worry, there's good news here. Everything we are doing and everything we have talked about doing is incredibly popular. Nothing in this poll suggests anything about altering our agenda. It's just about emphasis. <laughs> we just, we got to emphasize, accentuate the positives, if you will. That's the issue. It's that people don't know how awesome we are. That's the problem, which, by the way, is always the problem. Whenever you talk to Democrats about why people don't agree with them on things, they usually make some sort of argument that people just don't understand, right? Oh, you just need to educate yourself. You hear this a lot in the critical race theory debate too, that uh, you just need to educate yourself on this. And then they'll like turn around and ask you, well, what do you think critical race theory means? Like, I don't care. Give me a definition. I'll go with that. We can debate it afterwards, but like you can pick whatever definition you would like. Um, because I'm confident in my knowledge of the subject. So like we can debate whatever you would like. I don't care. Um, but they always talk about how you just don't understand the issue because if you did, you obviously would agree with them, right? That's the, there's, there's no other possible reason why somebody could disagree with them. But why would you leak this story out to Politico? So a couple different possible explanations. You put this out in order to mobilize or scare your base. Like there, and 
like there is a benefit here, like these, um, the DCCC and uh, the Republican group as well, like all of these entities, they they try to walk this line of motivating their base and their candidates, right, to to keep at it, to keep running. You're trying to like, yo, you can do it. Keep running. This is a marathon, not a sprint. You got to keep raising money if you're the candidates. You got you to keep making the phone calls, keep raising the money, keep doing the campaign appearances. So you want to keep them motivated. And for the base, same thing, like you want to keep people agitated, stirred up, motivated, like, oh, my gosh, most important election ever in my lifetime. I have to do everything I can, right? So you're trying to keep people mobilized and motivated. And fear is a very potent way to do that. So motivation, that's one potential reason why you would put this out there is to motivate your Democratic base. Um, Also, this could be put out there by... Uh, more moderate centrist Democrats in these swing districts as a uh, as a warning to the progressive members like Cori Bush um, that, hey, you guys keep saying really stupid stuff and uh, you're going to cost us our majority. So that's the that's another explanation. This is a pressure move by moderate centrist conservative Democrats like the two that are left, I guess. Um, you know, this is a warning to progressives. Don't go too far left. Also, it could be, and it could be all three of these things, but another explanation is that this is a plea to the mainstream media. Democrats need help focusing the messaging, right? What did Persico say here? He said, nothing in the polls suggests anything about altering our agenda. It's about emphasis. And so what does that mean? You're trying to emphasize a particular message, and if you're a politician, that means doing interviews with media, spreading that message and hammering away at a particular message, focusing on a particular message. And so, hey, media, do us a solid. We need you to talk about a good economy. The July poll was commissioned by the DCCC, and it was presented by Congressman Maloney last week during a Democratic candidate um, uh, uh, caucus meeting, and it showed... Uh, These generic Democratic candidates falling behind a generic GOP candidate by six points. As I mentioned, this is this is like uh, catastrophic. Democrats cautioned, though, that a generic matchup. In this poll, 16 months before an election does not necessarily signal how people would vote closer to the race. And that is true. Also, individual candidates are oftentimes way more popular you know, in a particular district than a, uh, you know, party generic candidate versus another unnamed party generic candidate. And that is true also. But <laughs> the same survey showed only 42% of people trusted Democrats on the economy. 42%, that's it. 42% of these people only trust Democrats on the economy, which is the topic that they want to run on. <laughs> so they have a bit of a problem. I'm not sure emphasis is going to get you there, right? And as I mentioned in the last hour, you've got the presidential polling numbers that reflect this too. If you're wanting to run on the economy, the assumption is that the economy is a strong issue for you, and it's not right now for Democrats. Now, again, a lot could change in a year. Maybe this changes. We shall see. The problem, according to congressional Democrats, is making sure that they get the credit See, that's the other thing. The economy is actually going really, really well. 
they just because of everything that they've done and they need to make sure that they get the credit for all of the good stuff. See, this is what I mean why uh, when I say this could be a, a plea to the mainstream media, hey, we need some help on the messaging. I mean, this is explicit, right? Think about it. If you're a reporter and you're covering this beat up in D.C., right, you're inside the Beltway and you read this story because it's, you know, it's your beat. So you read this story, and you're like, oh, they need some help making sure they get credit. Oh, they need some help making sure they emphasize the economy. And the survey also reveals some weak spots for the GOP candidate, including extremism tied to the January 6th riot at the Capitol and vaccinations. So you've got your marching orders now. Let's sit back and watch and see who takes them. That's not Scott Bupla. Or Michael Bupla. Scott Vance is the winner of the Michael Bublé tickets. Good job, Scott. His uh, skill and determination allowed him to be the 11th caller. And uh, we will be doing another giveaway tomorrow during the program. And you say we have, a, is there maybe another one later today? We don't. Yes, there is one. All right, there is one. So producer Ryan assures me. So if there's not, it's on him. He assures me <laughs> hey. <laughs> that uh, you're, you'll have another chance to win without having to listen to me tomorrow. Uh, but if you would like a chance to win tomorrow during the show, you can do that as well. Um, got an email. Uh, so, yes, I have the email set up. It's Pete.Calendar at Radio-1.com. Am I going to have to spell my name every time I give that out? Probably. Yep. I had a, <laughs> I had a boss a long time ago who said, you're just going to have to change your name to calendar. Like the, like the act, like the word calendar. You're just going to have to change your name. Cause that's what everybody thinks it is. Okay. No, no, not happening. Um, so I got an email here. Uh, Pete, welcome back to Charlotte. You will be a great and super local replacement for rush. Thank you. I appreciate it. He says in listening to you today, I heard you mention HB2 as well as North Mech as reasons that Pat McCrory lost in 2016. You also proved the point that Cooper successfully changed the narrative during that 2016 election and the press supported it and keep supporting it, particularly when you kept referring to their toll road on I-77. It's really just a toll lane. <laughs> okay, so full disclosure, I've not been up. Through the, have you been up there? You Do you drive on that toll? Is it a toll lane or toll road? Is it a whole road that's tolled? It's a toll lane. It's a toll lane. I try and avoid that area even with the toll lane. Yeah, so it's it, if I remember correctly, it's one of those hot lanes, right? Yes. Where it's just a bunch of, uh, uh, what are they, matchbox cars, the Hot Wheels, just riding all over the place. That's <laughs> that's my understanding of what was approved. No? So, all right, the... No, hot lane is a high-occupancy toll lane, right, if I remember correctly. Again, all this is just by memory, and I'm thinking that they charge you different rates depending on the volume of the traffic at any given time, right? And so this is uh, th- this is also referred to in the, uh, the transportation industry uh, as um, the rich person's lane. Like, rich people drive in the lane because they can afford to use the toll lane during the uh, – during- you know, peak commute times, the afternoon and morning drive, like they can, 
you know, the rich people, they don't care. They'll spend, I don't know, what does it go up to, $20 or something to use the toll lane, and then they get to go fast because they're rich. Which I'm fine. I'm not rich. I'm totally fine with that, too. They're, are you getting them out of the lane? Bye. Get them off the other roads or other lanes. I'm fine with that, too. So this is where I will tell you, if I was here at that time, I would have been arguing in favor of those toll lanes. I understand the complaints about the business that or the company that was behind it. I understand. I don't know all the details, but I remember people were very concerned about the company that was in charge of the project and all of that. But um, as a as one who, like, I prefer in general, I prefer user fees for things. I prefer things, like, if you're going to use these services or whatever, I think you should pay for them. And I think a, a direct user fee for that service or good is, in general, the best way to fund that thing. And that's why I'm okay with the with the hot lane. I'm all right with the idea. I really am. And apparently a lot of other people were okay with the idea when they initially proposed it and passed it. And then all of a sudden, everybody's not okay with the idea. So, uh, I got, hang on, there's more in this email. Uh, it's really just a toll lane, as in some parts. And there are two toll lanes while you go over the lake. There's just one going each way. There continues to be two free lanes, as there always has been. Cooper brilliantly built the perception that you could not get on I-77 in North Mech without paying a toll. I believe also that carpooling is free on the one to two toll lanes. Oh, now that's interesting. So it's a carpool lane and a hot lane. I'm going to have to go invest in a, uh, in a in a mannequin to sit in the passenger seat. No, don't do that. It's illegal. You're not allowed to do that. Um. Keep up the great work as your voice is needed. Thank you very much. I appreciate the email. Um, and uh, I have gotten some other emails over the last few days. Um, I have not been good about keeping up with it. It's like drinking from a fire hose because I'm on all these distribution lists. So I'm trying to keep up. But uh, I got an email from Jan and Scott, uh, among others. Um, and so I will try to reply to everybody as I usually do. So it's Pete.Calendar at radio-1.com. I believe that's the, I mean, that's what I'm going with. That's what I have it as. And then maybe we come up with a better email, like Pete at Pete.com. Now that probably, oh, I wonder if my old one is still a Pete at WBT.com. Because they did set me up with that, like. No, those have gone the way of the dodo. Really? Yes. We don't, none of the, okay. Uh, Well, so don't use that. I don't know where that's going to send you, but man. Remember I told you, like, I hadn't opened up my email in, like, a year here because I couldn't access it. And so when we finally opened it up, there were, like, 8,000 emails in it. Could you imagine how many emails would be in a reopened Pete at WBT account? Endless. After a decade? (laughs) Right. It would crash servers. Um, yeah, so the toll lane issue, which I thought was just, um, and that was a, I thought I thought it was a ridiculous issue, uh, but Cooper made hay off it. Uh, also, the HB two thing, I'll never forget during the debate between Cooper and McCrory, where the first, I think it was like the first question that they get asked. It wasn't about HB two. It was about something like unrelated, and Cooper's answer about halfway through. He just says, 
you know, and I'm not the one that keeps bringing up HB2. Like, just out of nowhere, he just brings it up and says, I'm not the one bringing it up. Literally, as he is the one bringing it up. And that was the nature of the entire debate, and he just kept doing it. I remember watching Pat, and he was just kind of laughing incredulously, as was I, as was I. What happens when you give producers the creative license to pick the music? Lesson learned. <laughs> All right. Um, so if uh, if I've gotten something wrong, and I'm just sending this, uh, this is a long-distance dedication to the person who called and said that I'm getting, I need to get the facts straight on the North Mech thing, so... Please, I will put you on the air. I don't know who you are. Uh, he gave no identifying information. It was a he. Yes. If we are assuming one's gender not expressed explicitly. Um, that's, that's all I, all I could tell you is the stuff that I was looking at from afar when I was, you know, 130 miles away. Um, and that's what it looked like, right, to us out in western North Carolina. That's the way it looked. Um. So I don't know, is it multiple lanes of traffic? Is it the whole road? Is it the... Anyway. Um, I, I played the audio of Cori Bush earlier. This is going to be a problem for the, uh, for the Democrats because she's not stopping her defund the police rhetoric. And this is a... Uh, it's a terrible message. It's a terrible slogan. It's a terrible idea. It's not popular, uh, except among the most left-wing, rabid uh, Democrats in the party. So, Corey Bush, thank you very much, by the way, to um, Andy, who sent me the screenshot here of our very own U.S. Senate candidate, uh, uh, Democrat Erica Smith, former state lawmaker. Now she's running for U.S. Senate. You'll recall she is the woman who um, was, uh, I don't know what the word is for it. Uh, Well, I mean, she was undermined. I'll just say that. Like, her efforts were undermined by... Senator Chuck Schumer two years ago because she was running in the Democratic primary for U.S. Senate, hoping to go up against Tom Tillis and um, Cal Cunningham became the nominee because Cal Cunningham got the backing of the National Democratic Party. And Erica Smith was not happy about that, made a big stink about it, and she's running again for the seat that's going to be vacated now by Senator Richard Burr. You got Erica Smith. You've got Jeff Jackson, state lawmaker here from uh, Charlotte. You've got Sherry Beasley, the former Supreme Court Chief Justice. Who wins? I don't know. As I said earlier, I don't make these predictions anymore. But Erica Smith, and this is sort of the conventional wisdom, though, is that uh, when people are gaming this out, they say, okay, does Erica Smith and Sherry Beasley, do they split the uh, African-American vote inside the Democrat primary, and then does that open up a path for Jeff Jackson, right? So that that, that's, and that's very rudimentary. Like, this is all very, you know, the the crude back-of-the-envelope kind of strategizing because it's way more involved than that, right? But that's sort of, it's one of the ideas that are out there. Well, Erica Smith just tweeted out after the, the, Corey Bush's, you know, uh, 
photo op on the steps of the Capitol where she was surrounded by the snack food and, uh, you know, saying don't evict anybody. And uh, after that, Erica Smith said Cori Bush is an American hero. She's an American hero. So in case you were wondering who is joining whom at the hip, Erica Smith on board with the farthest, uh, the farthest, uh, the, did I say farthest, the farthest of the far left wing of the Democrat Party. Sherry Beasley, she is also, though, um, <laughs> she has also uh, uh, engaged in uh, fundraisers with some of these elected officials as well in the past. So uh, we'll keep an eye on that. Now, I will say that there was a piece over at the Daily Cost. This is a far left moon bat infested website daily costs kos and uh there was a piece that was posted up they call these guys diarists diarist people who write so it's basically like crowdsourcing your information it's like wikipedia basically anybody can sign up and post some stuff over there okay so there's one guy frank that's his name frank and he um frank sorry frank rl is his uh, handle. And so he's a diarist and he says multiple sources confirm, but he won't say who they are, but multiple sources confirm that North Carolina Senate democratic candidate, Sherry Beasley has seen several high level departures from her campaign recently. Seems to me like this might be an easy thing to track down, right? Last month, several top members of her finance team left her campaign last week. Her campaign manager quit. She entered the race in April quickly garnering a number of endorsements. We don't know what number that is, though. He doesn't say. From state legislators and church leaders, she reported raising nearly $1.3 million in her first quarter as a candidate. So far, she has kept a relatively low profile while reportedly focusing on fundraising, which is what Schumer told Cal Cunningham to do, remember? That was the windowless basement line. Well, I take it back. He didn't tell Cal Cunningham to do that. We can assume he did, but that story came from Jeff Jackson, because State Senator Jeff Jackson, he wanted to run for U.S. Senate, as I mentioned earlier, and he talked to Chuck Schumer, and Chuck Schumer said, what are you going to do? Like, what, Tell me what your campaign is going to be like. And Jeff Jackson's like, I would very much like to tour all 100 counties. And Chuck Schumer's like, eh, wrong answer. You're going to go in a windowless basement. You're going to dial for dollars for like a year. Like That was what Schumer said to do. And Jeff Jackson was like, I'm not going to do that. So he didn't run. Cal Cunningham was like, I'll do that, which was kind of really like a common theme for Cal Cunningham's campaign. Sorry, too soon? Probably, all right, too soon. Anyway, so Cal Cunningham was like, I will do that. I will dial for the dollars. And, um, and he did, and then he won. He beat Erica Smith in the primary, and then he became the candidate, and then he had all the affairs, and then he was out. So uh, Tom Tillis gets reelected. There you go. Recap of uh, <laughs> the North Carolina U.S. Senate race. What else? Oh, Chantel Brown, surprising win in an Ohio special election. Uh, this was uh, she beat a leftist Democrat. So now um, these are they're calling these people Biden Democrats. They're Biden Democrats. OK, the story includes printing strong statements from Representative Hakeem Jeffries. He is the chair of the House Democratic Caucus. He sees the message of the Ohio race combined with Eric Adams's win in New York City in that mayoral race, he sees the uh, these two wins as a pretty clear signal that Democrats are not looking to expand the squad. New York Times reports, quote, 
Representative Hakeem Jeffries of New York, a top member of House leadership, said in an interview Wednesday that Democratic voters were clearly rejecting candidates from the party's most strident and ideological flank. Where some primary voters welcomed an angrier message during the Trump years, there is less appetite now for revolutionary rhetoric. (laughs) Or, yeah, that's why I always refer to it as La Revolution, you know? Yeah, because, yeah, Uh, the extreme left, he says, is obsessed with talking trash about mainstream Democrats on Twitter when the majority of the electorate constitute mainstream Democrats at the polls. Mainstream Democrats, Jeffrey says, are not, quote, going to act like punching bags for the extreme left. Oh, I disagree. I disagree. Past performance is kind of indicative of future results here. Uh, The mainstream Democrats have traditionally been punching bags of the left. Just my observation from the outside. Need some more cowbell on that. Uh, Pete, enjoy hearing you back on BT. Not enough to move back to Charlotte, but still. Thank you, Jim. (laughs) Appreciate it. News Talk 1110-993-WBT, 704-570-1110-1800-WBT-1110. See, that's the nice thing, though, is that with the WBT app, you don't have to move back to Charlotte to hear me. I'm on the app. Joe is on the line. Let's uh, talk to Joe. Hey, Joe. Well, hey, sir. How you doing, my friend? I am okay. How are you? Just wanted to say, um, before anything else, it's great to hear you back on the radio again. I've missed you. You know, we were friends when you left, and, you know, and I missed you and wondered where you went. <laughs> it wasn't and, you. It was nothing you did. I can say that. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> I appreciate uh, I appreciate the compliment. But the fact is that WBT did a wise decision in putting you on the air this this hour. I mean, there's nobody could replace Rent Limbaugh, of course, no. but you're as good as you're as best it could be. Well, thank you. That's very kind. I appreciate it. I mean, you're the... But you know so much more about politics, and I follow politics, but you really do know about what's going on so I just, much here's better the, than I do. You know, the I, secret is I just sound like it, and then people think it's true. Uh, that's no, it. That's the secret. <laughs> and you're modest, too, and I appreciate that. That's one of the reasons why I always liked you. You were always just so personable. Um, what I just wanted to ask about was that there's a – it seems to me a, a, a popular – misconception of what it means by we're created equal in our society. And I just wanted to, I don't know if you want me to go ahead and tell you my take on it, I'll go ahead and say that I was going to ask you, but, you know, like I said, there just seems to be a a very popular misconception of what that means. And it's in the Declaration of Independence, not in the Constitution, but it's in our formative documents, and it had a whole lot to do with forming the the ground rules of what this country is supposed to be based on. Mm-hmm. And I just, do you, do you want me to say what I think it is? Or? So are you asking about, so you say there's a popular misconception of what that means. Do you mean the, um, just the concept or do you mean the actual words in the declaration? Well, the, the concept that the, the, of the words that's in the declaration. All right. So then do you, are, are you saying that you, you're going to, well, go ahead and just make your comment then, I guess. We'll just start. Okay. Yeah. Well, we're all, you know, I hear all the time 
we're all created equal and mm-hmm. which is and the idea is that we're all equal and since we're all equal some people seem to get the idea to follow the next logical step we all deserve the equal same equal outcomes because we're all equal and that's an absolute lie you know Thomas Jefferson and none of the founding fathers and and anybody that's got any brains knows good and well we're not equal I mean I'm not equal to you you have talents I don't have I may have talents you don't have um, there's some people who can play basketball thousand times better than me and some people who are smarter some people who are not some people who are faster whatever stronger right. you know right anybody with any sense knows this so I think so all right so I think then that the the um what you're getting at is the uh, is the concept of equity that is now used that is used in place of equality because equity means um unequal outcomes but essentially you know helping people get to a more equal outcome as someone else that's the way equity is now used and it sounds very similar to equality and so people think oh this is a good thing of course it would be but the concept itself and you know this i'm sure that the actual concept of that we are all created equal means that like we are all endowed by our creator with these rights these inalienable rights they come from god they don't come from man they don't come from government and so uh government is simply there to protect those inalienable rights and we are all equal under that law under god's law and under uh natural law as well but also under uh our civic law Exactly. You said it even better than I probably could have said it. And that's exactly right. We're equal before the law. And that's the way we're equal. And only, and really, in my opinion, there's only two countries where that came about. And the reason why it came about in this country is because we were divorcing ourselves from England. And in England, they're definitely not equal. Right. Because certain people were nobility and the rest were the common man. And of course, the nobility had more rights than the common man. Mm hmm. But the fact was, we are equal before the law. That is what it means. It does not mean we are equal and that we can be all treated equal. Because believe me, you know, there are just people who are who are treated better than I am in certain respects because they are they've earned it. Well, but also people do things that I can't do in certain respects. Now, before the law, and as far as you know, civility, we should treat each other kindly because I've learned even people that I've wondered about that they had talents and things that I didn't have and they deserve respect. Everybody deserves respect. And that comes from my Christian right. background. Well, and this gets to, though, it gets to sort of the other aspect to living in a, a civil society, a peaceable society, which is that government can't do all of these things, regulate all human interaction. Uh, and that's the role for faith. It's the role for civic organizations, for churches, right? The, those those other entities and the people that make them up are uh, they're the ones to guide how we interact with one another. And so, yeah, when you when you try to turn all of this stuff over to the government to set standards like this, then it's going to fail because it's a man-made construct, and all man-made things are imperfect. So uh, it's just it's a losing proposition. I, Joe, it's good to hear from you. I do appreciate the call. Um, yeah, I just I think uh, the concept of equality under the law gets clouded on purpose. It gets conflated with equity, which is not equality. 
and, and that is done on purpose, and it is done in order to advance an agenda. Uh, let me go over here to Sam. Welcome to the show. Sam, how are you? Hey, how you doing hey, today, good. guy? Good, good. Oh, I'm doing well. I always have more than I need. That makes me happy. Well, good. Anyways, um, under this crazy infrastructure, they want to fix this country. They say we need to do this to create jobs and all this stuff. Well, that's all well and good. But the only problem, we're, all we're doing is making a bigger world of consumers and doing temporary jobs. So I'm wondering, why don't they take this infrastructure money and put it towards low-interest loans to start companies to bring stuff back to this country that we don't produce and we're having trouble getting now, like, I don't know, uh, semiconductors for cars, um, transformers. So if our grid goes down, we can produce our own transformers for our electrical grid in case there happens to be something go wrong, like maybe uh, electromagnetic pulse, so we don't have to depend on China going, uh, you know what? We got all the transformers. We, we're doing with to make them, and... Uh, you're in trouble, and we're going to take advantage of this. So why don't our country create these jobs where we have to produce things ourselves and, on top of that, take and it'll create jobs that are going to stay there, not temporary jobs just fixing this road or that road. It'll produce a tax base to increase the income of our government, which will lessen the burden on our society. I mean, there's no losing end to it. Well, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm old enough to remember Solyndra. Um, so, <laughs> uh, Sam, I appreciate the call. I, I don't know. I mean, it sounds like what you're arguing is a you've already accepted the premise that this is an acceptable thing for government to do and fund, um, namely the creation of industry or businesses. And I'm not so sure I agree with that. I understand, like, the, some of the founders talked about infant industries and how um, you can, you know, help sort of juice these infant industries uh, that are vital and they're just getting off the ground so they deserve some, you know, protections or whatever as they get launched. But generally speaking, you, you know, you should, government should not be doing that. It shouldn't be doing that. And um, I understand that, you know, people look at infrastructure differently. Um, and people just accept the premise that this is what government should be doing, building all of the roads and such. And so I think that's an easier lift politically to make those arguments versus to go out and say, hey, let's take all of this, you know, trillion dollar infrastructure and let's, you know, let, let's build, I don't know, you know, Faraday cages to cover all of the uh, <laughs> all of the electrical grid. I don't know. It's a crazy example. But I, I don't think that's uh, I don't think you're going to have as many political constituents for that position as you would, oh, I want a better road because everybody, you know, everybody wants good roads to drive on. Nobody's like, give me a road that's really poorly paved, lots of potholes uh, and, you know, terrible signalization. Nobody's advocating that. Everybody wants decent roads. Everybody wants to be able to get where they need to go in a timely fashion. So it's an easy political lift. I don't know if that answers the question. I think it does. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Pete Callender here, 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. 
just looking through the inbox here, and um, I was talking earlier about Congresswoman Cori Bush and how Erica Smith, the Democratic candidate, a Democratic candidate for U.S. Senate in North Carolina, um, that she had tweeted out that Cori Bush is an American hero for camping out on the Capitol steps for a night. And uh, I, I mentioned that Sherry Beasley, the former state Supreme Court Chief Justice, uh, that she had also uh, done some uh, joint fundraising or something. And um, thank you to the uh, National Republican Senatorial Communications Committee <laughs> for blasting out the email that reminded me of the details here that uh, Sherry Beasley did, in fact, um, participate. They filed a joint joint fundraising committee with Congresswoman Bush to help fundraise off the socialist left that makes up Bush's and Beasley's base. So it was more than just an event. They've actually filed a joint fundraising committee. They created a committee so they can share in the money to help Sherry Beasley. Interesting. And so while I was looking at that email, that press release that just came down, I see this other press release that came from Erica Smith. And it says, here's something you may not know about me. In the North Carolina State Senate, I represented Princeville. Okay, well, joke's on you. I did know that. So already, like, how do I proceed reading this email if you're just going to lie to me? Right? I know you represented Princeville. But she says, uh, then this is all bolded, the very first uh, first town incorporated by black people in U.S. history. I'll tell you more about Princeville, North Carolina. But first, I have to ask, if you can, can you give me some money? I need some money. Um, Historic campaign. Here's the link. Donate now. Blah, blah, blah. And then she circles back to... It was the honor of a lifetime to represent Princeville in the North Carolina State Senate for three terms. Generation after generation, the people of Princeville have developed a strong sense of pride in our history and in our community. Today, Princeville stands as a symbol of black determination and endurance. Then she goes on to talk about the history of Princeville and how she is bringing the legacy of Princeville with her as she runs to become the first black woman to represent North Carolina in the U.S. Senate. And... I'm just trying to think of, like, that is a really overt racial message, is it not? That is, hey, look at me. I'm black. I'm, okay, I'm, like, I'm not black. I'm, like, I'm white. I'm not, but, like, she's saying, like, look at me. I'm black. I'm from this town, incorporated by black people. I'm carrying on that tradition. Vote for me because I'll be a black person representing black people in the U S Senate. Like that's a racialized message. It's also interesting. She's making this message in a primary where there is another black woman running against her, right? Who has already, right. Who has already held statewide elective office. Okay. Granted she was appointed to it, but she held the office. Jerry Beasley was appointed to that statewide elected office. She was defeated barely, but she was elected. Or, I'm sorry, she was uh, in the office, um, which is why people kind of consider her to be the front runner in this race. We shall see. Now, uh, back to the story. This comes from hotair.com, and uh, it cites the New York Times article uh, about the Democrats are done being punching bags. 
the establishment uh, Democrats are done being punching bags for the extreme left. I'm not so sure, <laughs> but uh, but some, but Hakeem Jeffries is Hakeem Jeffries. He is a congressman from New York. He is a top member of House leadership, and he did this interview with the New York Times. And he's like, look, this race, this uh, special election in Ohio where Chantel Brown won and she was seen as a Biden Democrat, more of a moderate Democrat, establishment Democrat, not a rabid leftist, you know, like AOC or Cori Bush or Rashid Tlaib or Ilan Omar or Ayanna Presley, the squad members, right? That candidate lost. And so Jeffries says this is good because this shows that the voters are with the moderates, with the establishment Democrats, and not with the extreme left. Although, as I said, like I'm not so sure. If you're counting on the moderate Democrats to stand up against the far left, I don't think you can expect that to happen. But we shall see. Um, Cory Bush says, it was one election. It's an indicator of absolutely nothing. It's no indicator that progressives aren't going to win at all. People tried to say that about me, and I'm here. Axios then went on to speak with Congressman Jim Clyburn, who came off the sidelines and got involved with this race in Ohio solely because he was personally insulted. (laughs) This is the thing. I've said this for years. Politics is so much about personal relationships. It really is. This kind of stuff happens all the time. Somebody says something like people are friends or friendly. They're at an event. They're doing something, whatever. A word gets back to somebody that they said something about such and such. And then all of a sudden it's like, I'm going to burn them down. And all in public, it's like, oh, my good friend. Oh, the gentleman from whatever state. And But that's this kind of stuff, this, these personal dynamics. It's like a soap opera, but it matters. <laughs> with a <laughs> with trillions of dollars in debt and spending. But it's like a soap opera. So here's what Clyburn said. Quote, I was going to stay right here in South Carolina, minding my business, until I got called stupid. <laughs> and that did it. He's like, I'm in. You call me stupid. This is another lesson that the far left needs to learn, but so far has not, says John Sexton at hotair.com. No one has to put up with their crap, and they are quickly wearing out their welcome. Oh, but were it true? (laughs) I would like to believe it, but I'm not so sure. The whole defund the police effort, right? We are seeing some of the the programs here in Charlotte, actually, right? This violence interrupter thing. It's not the only example. This stuff is going on all over the place. The Q City Metro publication had a write-up. Um, about several programs across North Carolina. But then you have the reaction. Nassau County up on Long Island, they've got a bill up there that would allow cops to sue protesters. (laughs) And one of the, and apparently some of the language leaves it open so a cop could sue a protester who seriously annoy them. (laughs) That's the standard. Seriously annoy them. I'm going to get into that. As well as the, uh, I do have some questions about the violence interrupter thing that they've got planned here in, in Charlotte. Like, what happens outside the hours that they're slated to be on staff? Like, does the violence not happen? I, I, I have questions. 
The problem with having televisions in the studio is that I see, well, soap operas, but I see commercials, and I, I, I end up with serious questions. The one I was just debating with producer Ryan was the Charmin commercial, and not specifically the commercial, but the mascots for the Charmin toilet paper product, the bears. Bears. Why bears? Why am I listening to bears endorse toilet paper? Right? Think it through. Why would they pick bears? It's the most opposite thing you could pick. Bears literally do not need them. In fact, there's a whole saying built around this very premise that it is quite obviously the case that bears do not use toilets. Hence, no need for the toilet paper. Yet this is the mascot, the endorser, that Charmin creates to tell me to buy their toilet paper. A cartoon bear that I know doesn't use that product. You know what, ha- you know what would happen to me if I endorse stuff and said I use stuff that I don't use? I'd get in trouble for that. Not allowed to do that. Where's the FCC coming down on... Uh, on Charmin. Like cracking down on Charlotte. Where is that? Not that I'm demanding gov- uh, government action against a private entity. I, these are the questions that run through my mind when I see the commercial. This is the problem with televisions in the studio. I digress. So, although North Carolina law enforcement agencies have been using crisis intervention training, or CIT, for more than 15 years, to learn to respond to people in mental health crises... There is now a growing belief that it's unwise for police to respond to every emergency call, especially those involving mental health issues or homelessness. Wait a minute. Are police even responding to homelessness calls? That 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 would be uh, that would be news to me. I'm not aware. Like, all I know is I drive by. So every day I drive by a fella. He's under the he's under I-77. He's on Moorhead Street. He's got the Jesus Save sign. He's got the shopping cart. And he's either, he's in, he's doing one of two things. He's either laying down, like asleep or not, but he's laying down on the sidewalk. Uh, or he's sitting on a bucket uh, scrolling through his cell phone. And he's always shirtless and he's wearing uh, a pair of like black shorts. And like that's, he's always there. I like, I'm not, so I'm, I don't believe the police are doing anything with homelessness, are they? I mean, I guess maybe if somebody's, like, causing problems, he doesn't seem to be causing problems. So I don't know. Um, again, I, I'm, I'm, I'm new back in town. I'm trying to figure out, is that what I have to say now? I'm new back in town or recently returned to town? Because I can't say I'm new to town because I'm, I'm, I'm not really new to town, right? I, I know this town. I know this city. I watched it get built. I covered all the zoning meetings. I've driven all around. I've covered... Fires and shootings in every part of this city for a decade. So, like, I, I'm not new to town. You haven't rode on that toll road, though, yet. Lane. Toll lane. I have not, I have not driven. I will say I drove past it. I've, and, I, and I drove through the work zone several times. But um, I've not used the toll. What do you need? Do you need an easy pass for that thing? The easy pass. And that's part actually, of Actually, I think it takes your tag. So if, you're, if, you're, if you're... If you're no, I think oh, is, I, oh. I think even without the easy pass, it takes it off your tag. So it just you just you just get a bill in the mail. 
So is this what they did with all of that, uh, the technology that they had for all of the stoplight cameras that they had to take down all those years ago? They just repurposed them for the, uh, <laughs> the tolling. <laughs> well, because we used to have, this was a big fight. Oh my gosh, this was a big fight. There was a huge fight over the, the, the red light cameras, the stoplight cameras in Charlotte. And somebody, some guy sued, again, top of, off of the top of my head, just going from memory, somebody sued. And they ended up taking down all the cameras because the state constitution says that in order uh, or to stay legal, when you collect these types of fines, the revenue has to go to the school district and the city of Charlotte was using it to fund the program of the cameras, the administration of the, uh, of the cameras. And then I think they were keeping the extra revenue. And when they found out they couldn't keep the extra revenue from this lawsuit, uh, that got filed when they were told, like, hey, this is the Constitution. If you are doing these types of fines and such, then it's got to go to – it's counted as revenue. It's got to go to the local school district. This was kind of the same thing that happened with the Atlantic Coast Pipeline. And, you know, Cooper tried to do an end run around that constitutional provision as well. And uh, he got smacked down for that, and then the whole pipeline project went bust. But whatever, the uh, the red light cameras, when the city found out that they couldn't keep the money, they were like, well – we're not going to run this at a at a cost. I mean, we care about people's safety, but come on, <laughs> right? Like, not like that much. I mean, we 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 still want to take this money and you know build stuff that you know will get us votes. So they did away with the camera. So it's good to see if that's where the cameras went. I'm glad they found another purpose for the cameras up on the toll, uh, not road, toll lane, on the toll lanes. So you don't even need the, uh, it, and that does make sense. You wouldn't even need the easy pass at this point, right? I guess uh, it just seems like, yeah, you should be able to scan the license plates or, uh, or probably what they could probably just get the uh, information off of the chip that the vaccine put in me. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you hold your arm out the window. <laughs> it's, it's magnetized. I just. <laughs> Yeah, you got to drive with one with the the left arm hanging out the window, right? Just so it can scan the. Well, what if you got it in your right arm? I did do that. I got so I did so I I changed it up. I said the first shot I got on one arm, and then the second shot I got on the other arm. So what do I do? I'm only like halfway vaccinated, so I can only ride in like half of the lane. I don't know. You have to use your knees to drive. Yeah, I don't know. There's might be might be some operational issue with that uh at any rate um where was i oh the uh crisis intervention uh training which is fine north carolina law enforcement agencies going through the cit this crisis intervention training that's great durham started a new community safety department that will eventually hire clinicians to respond to some 911 calls the department is still in the planning phases um in north carolina House Bill 802 would appropriate nearly $2 million in grants over two years to Charlotte, Greenville, and Greensboro for pilot STAR programs, the S-T-A-R program. This is Support Team Assistance Response, and uh, they've done this in Denver, Colorado. Um, These are non-police responses to some emergency calls. STAR, this program in Denver, was launched in June 2020. It received a positive evaluation after its first six months. A paramedic mental health clinician team responded to 748 calls 
None resulted in an arrest or a police response. And apparently no injuries. That's important to note here as well. Nobody was killed, as far as I can tell from this report. So there's a grant uh, under a House bill that would come to Charlotte, as well as Greenville and Greensboro, uh, to do a pilot program. The bill has not had a committee hearing since introduction in early May, and uh, its chances of getting through the General Assembly are unknown. There is another measure, House Bill 786. It would award grants to law enforcement agencies that establish non-police responses to 911 calls about mental health, substance abuse, homelessness, or other behavioral health crises. This is, and cops will tell you this, people that work in the courts will tell you this, they see the same people over and over and over again, particularly the homeless population. There is a small portion of the homeless population that accounts for the vast majority of police interactions and incarcerations. Uh, it's just, it's just constant, right? So is there a better way to do this? I think so. I hope so. Maybe this is a pathway towards that. As far as the violence interrupter idea, I have some doubts. I have some questions. That's fun. It's the name of the band. Fun. They got this song and they got... What's the other one? Tonight, I'll carry you home tonight. What's that song? They got that one. That's their two songs. Well, then the lead singer did the other one. He did like a cameo. But they like... They were like a two and a half hit. Wonder. I shouldn't say that. I don't know what they're doing. They could very well be still popular. This is me connecting with millennials. <laughs> Ryan, I actually, I'm curious. Are you a millennial? I'm going to be 34 on Sunday. Oh, I think so then. Which is weird because millennials, I always think of as kids, but but now they're like in their 30s. So yeah, you're a millennial. <laughs> Do you identify as a millennial? Uh, I, take it, I take it as an offense. So you do not identify as a millennial. Correct. All right. That's fair. Of all the things that you can and cannot identify as, I think, you know, generational uh, participation like that, I think is fair. Because some people, especially folks, like if you had a, do, do you have any siblings? I have one older brother. And there you go. So that's it. Is, was he also a millennial? Um, no. There you go. So people who have older, I'm saying there you go as if I've already laid this premise out, which I have not, but I shall right now. It's very quick, which is if you are younger sibling to an older sibling, a lot of times I have found they, uh, they have a lot more in common with their older siblings generation because they want to be like their older brother when they were younger. And so the stuff their older brother liked, they, they would like too, right? They were interested in those things too. And so because I have to work with Ryan, I'm going to assume that is the case with you and you are, you are identifying as a Gen Xer, which is the best generation. As far as I know, I'm fine with that. Okay, good. I'm gonna I'm gonna feel like a millennial on Sunday when I'm one year older. I'm, I want to be younger on my birthday. You want? That's not possible. <laughs> you're younger. You're older on your birthday. That's how that works. No, that's not the way I want it. See, I used to think the same thing. I was like, I'm gonna live forever, and so far, so good. Well, actually, I still think that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like you have this deal where like you're not gonna get older, but you do. It happens, and then you'll know it when you. Um, when you start 
noticing uh, like the joint pain in your knees. I haven't hit that yet. But right. I, def- I definitely have the back pain, though. Yeah, well, there you go. You're on your way. All right. <laughs> um, so the city of Charlotte and Mecklenburg County named Charlotte native Belton Platt site supervisor for its Alternative to Violence Program, or the ATV program. Would that be just the AV program? Do we capitalize the T? I have, I have, okay, I have a bit of a hang-up. Something you should know about me. I have a bit of a hang-up on the acronyms, okay? People who make these acronyms, I just, I prefer there to be some consistency. I think there should be some consistency in the acronym uh, development, right? Because I was under the impression we do not acronymize the T in two the F in four, right? Like, you don't do that. Well, there's nothing consistent in the English language to begin with. True. That is fair. That's because we, we, we languagely appropriate everything. That's what makes America great. Um, ATV, the Alternatives to Violence Program. See, so that would be an ATVP. That would be the ATVP, right? If you're being consistent. Anyway, Platt is going to oversee two violence interrupters and two outreach workers charged with mediating and reducing violent crime along Beatty's Ford Road corridor. Officials made the announcement during a press conference this week at the government center uptown. All right. By the way, did you catch Bo Thompson's interview with uh, former police chief Kerr Putney about this? And I thought Putney makes a very good point. Like, where's the police role in this? Here's, here's my concern. Okay. And again, what do I know? Just a radio guy. All right. I'm just hosting the show, but uh, I kind of have some doubts about whether this will work, and I hope it does. I really do. I hope it works. But um, what happens if the interruption doesn't work? Because you can't be 100% successful in your violence interrupting, right? At some point, you're not going to be able to succeed. And at that point, when the violence does occur, and now the violence interrupters know who is to blame, who did the violence, because they tried to interrupt it, and it didn't get interrupted, it proceeded apace, and now someone has been, you know, victimized. What do the violence interrupters do? Yeah, see? See where this is going? As soon as they say, we know who did this, now they're going to be labeled as snitches. And no one's going to work with them, right? By the way, did they catch anybody for the uh, the mass shooting on Beatty's Ford Road? Right, the, the a mass shooting event. No, still no. Right, why is that? There was like four thousand people there. What happened? What, nobody saw what happened. Not a single person saw what happened. Please, like we all know what's happening there. Every no one wants to say. No one wants to say what happened. Who did it? Either for fear or protection. Right, they they're trying to protect these people that they like, their friends, their relatives, whatever. And there's this no-snitch culture. Snitches get stitches. You can't, you can't rat that person out. And so they get to hang around in the neighborhood with a bunch of bodies on them. And so what? Right? Well, what if the violence interrupters were involved in, you know, they were trying to interrupt whatever violence occurred, for example, at that location? Violence occurs. Are they now going to tell police? Are they going to help be a part of solving that crime and bringing justice to the victim's family? Are they going to be a part of that? And if they are, then what happens? 
Is that the end of the violence interrupter program? Because nobody's going to talk to them because they're snitches. If you're seen talking to one of the, the violence interrupt, I'm, I hate this term, so the, the VIs, if they see you talking to the VIs, they're going to be like, mm-mm, you know that guy is a snitch because he's talking to the VIs. How soon does that happen if it hasn't already? Is that, I don't know. Just asking questions. Um, <laughs> I also have, I'm also curious about the hours of operation. This is just more of an operational kind of a question. Like what happens if you get a tip that there's some violence about to go down and you might have a chance to interrupt it, but I mean, it is a city job. So like you're right about closing time. Like, do you, do you take off for the night? You know, like what happens if it's some violence that's occurring outside of the window? You leave uh, in the Dropbox. <laughs> yeah, like do you hang the little sign with the clock on it that says, you know, we'll return at 4 a.m.? You know, if you have the need to commit any violence, you know, please call this number. Uh, we will help interrupt it. Um, if this is an actual emergency, call 911. Otherwise, leave a message and a VI will get back in contact with you to help interrupt the violence that you're contemplating engaging in. Something like that, right? It's funded for one year. It's got a grant of $500,000 towards the program. And again, I do hope it works. I hope it reduces violence. I hope it reduces crime. But I'm not sure it will. And these types of programs have been around for a while. I mean, like gang violence, right? Out in uh, Los Angeles, I think, is where I remember seeing a lot of this work getting done, where you had former gang members that then, you know, uh, they either went to jail or whatever they, you know, they, they got on the straight and narrow and now they're like, I'm going to go in and do work and try to get people out of the gang lifestyle um, and try to, you know, try to help people get off that path. Um, I'm, you know, I, I support those programs. I think everybody should, right? I mean, if they, if they work fantastic, that's the key though. If they work, if they don't work, like how do you, how are we actually going to measure whether this works or not a reduction in violence I would think that should be a key metric, right? Is there reduced violence? The uh, or uh, uh, the solving of cases is that a metric? No, is, is anybody asking those questions? I'm, I am. Well, what do I know? News Talk eleven ten ninety nine three WBT. Police reform advocates are criticizing a Nassau County bill. Nassau County is up on Long Island. It's not as good of a county as Suffolk County, nor as big, but uh, Nassau County is all right. And um, this bill would make police and other first responders a protected class under human rights laws. What? Look, I've been in talk radio 20 plus years now, and I can tell you, when the hate crime stuff and the legislation for hate crimes was first being debated and people on the left were like, we need hate crimes and protected classes and all this stuff. And people on the right were saying, you start down this path, you're going to end up having like this whole list of people and stuff that are going to get on that list. Cause now it's going to be essentially a protection racket. And here we are, <laughs> here we are Nassau County looking to add police officers, first responders, to a protected class status. The bill would allow police to bring civil lawsuits against anyone who harasses or menaces them 
as those terms are defined under New York penal law. The bill was drafted by county legislator Joshua Lafazan of Woodbury, who caucuses with the Democrats, but he's registered unaffiliated. He described the intent of the bill as a way to protect police from a, quote, widespread pattern of physical attacks and intimidation. He says there's an urgent need to enhance the legal protections afforded to our law enforcement personnel to make them whole in the face of injuries suffered at the hands of rioters and other individuals bent on lawless behavior and to deter and punish such destructive behavior in order to protect the human rights of all people. Now, the bill obviously ignited controversy, (laughs) and uh, uh, he brought it up at a closed-door caucus meeting with the Democrats, and they were not happy. There was one legislator, Ciela Benoit, a Democrat from Westbury. She said she's concerned protesters angry at police misconduct could be sued, and we can't have that. They need to be able to do whatever they want to do, including and up to like chucking rocks at police officers heads. I believe I think that's what is covered under the peaceful protest category. If passed, opponents want County Executive Laura Curran, a Democrat running for reelection, to veto the bill. David Kilmanick, president of the LGBT network in New York said, quote, the threat of police officers being attacked just because they're police officers is a bunch of garbage, end quote. <laughs> right. That never happens. I've never, Have you ever heard of such a thing happening? Police officers being attacked just because they're police officers? I've never encountered such a news story. This proposed law would also allow cops to sue protesters for harassment if they, quote, seriously annoy them while they're on duty. (laughs) This would be bad. If I was a cop, this would be a very bad law because like I would have lawsuits against probably every person, (laughs) right? Like if I'm on duty and like, uh, does this count? I'm assuming it counts like I'm on duty, but like I'm on break. And so I'm like going through the grocery store and you know, somebody wheels their buggy out without looking both ways before they exit the aisle, I'd be like, that's a lawsuit. I'm suing that person. What's your name? And you know they would give it to me because, like, I'm a cop. I'm in uniform. They're like, okay, here's my name. like, boom, lawsuit. You annoyed me. Seriously annoyed me. I'd also probably then, I'd I'd file one against, like, the management and the owners of the grocery store because they're, you know, there are signs that say, you know, 10 items or less. I'm like, seriously annoying. It's 10 items or fewer. That's not 10 items or less. Boom, there's your lawsuit. A controversial measure approved 12 to 6 by county lawmakers would allow first responders to sue protesters and others who give them a hard time or threaten to cause them bodily harm. The bill uh, would still need to be signed, as I mentioned, by the county executive who is up for re-election. And she says she's got to check with the attorney general's office before making a call on the proposal. The bill also condemns organized mob violence, saying it undermines the foundations of law, democracy, and ordered liberty, which it does, and severely impairs the ability of citizens to engage in peaceful protest, which it does. The bill cites state law that identifies harassment as an attempt to, quote, to alarm or seriously annoy another individual. So that's where this comes from. So because the existing law has the definition of uh, what harassment is, And that definition includes the term seriously annoy when you write a law that says 
cops can't be harassed. They can sue you if you harass them. Then, yeah, seriously annoying. Them. Like, yeah, seriously annoying. I've seen a lot of video of the protests over the last year or five. And, yeah, a lot of that behavior would be seriously annoying. <laughs> so I would be, I would just, if I'm a cop, like I'm out there, I would be having like, I don't know what you would have like in your pocket, like the, the, the subpoenas. Was that what they would be? Like just a pocket full of them. I would just be like standing there. As soon as somebody comes in, gets in my face, I'd be like, here's your, here's your lawsuit. You're sued. Move along. You're sued. What's that? Oh, find me like bacon. Here you go. Here's, here's your lawsuit. Boom. I'd just be handing them all out. Like everybody. Like there'd be like a thousand people in the street protesting. And I'd be like, give one to everybody. I'd just be walking around, just handing them out to everyone. You're seriously annoying. You're seriously annoying. You are totally seriously annoying. Let me go to, let me go to Bob. Hello, Bob. Welcome to the show. How you doing? I'm all right. Hey, listen. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. And when I was a boy, there was a guy named Joe Bonanno who was wanted by the FBI, and he mm. disappeared for a while, and he appointed his son Robert to take care of his stuff. Mm. Well, Robert was visiting one of his girlfriends. We came out of the apartment. Three guys tried to kill him, running down the street shooting. Mm. When the cops got there, nobody, nobody heard saw anything. nothing. <laughs> nobody saw anything. Right. Yeah. Uh huh. This is a 99% Sicilian neighborhood. Right. Nobody knows nothing. Right. So this is not new with this baby school road. This goes on everywhere. No, I agree. Right. It's a, it's, that's why I said it's an anti-snitch culture. And yeah. that culture exists all over the place, right? Snitches get yeah. stitches. Uh, no rats, right? You know, you don't deal with rats. There's a rat, you know, all that. Sure. But what, but what are all those what – what is that culture a, uh, a characteristic of? Right, that is not a culture of a peaceful, law-abiding. I was say, it's a culture of fear. Right, because it's it's used in service to protect a criminal enterprise, illegality, lawlessness. Right, a criminal yeah. culture requires that no snitches uh, uh, protocol or whatever. I mean, like that that has to be the norm because otherwise. If everybody's going to rat out the bad guys, they're going to prison, and then there's no more criminal enterprise. So the criminal enterprise requires the adoption of that standard. And Absolutely. so neighborhoods that engage in it, like you, like anybody, whether it's the Sicilians in New York or Sicily, I guess, um, but wherever, like wherever that culture Absolutely. exists, that's what you're protecting is the criminal culture, the criminal enterprise. Sure. Yeah. But it's the way it works. Yeah. Bob, appreciate the call. Um let me go over here to Eileen real quick. I have about a minute. Hello, Eileen. Okay, I'll take just a minute. Um, I just received a survey, 50-state survey from the ACLU, and it is absolutely disgusting. So I just wanted to warn your listening people that they will probably be getting these since I don't know why I got it because I'm a registered libertarian. Well, that's why you got it. And it is absolutely awful, awful, awful. So I wonder, I'm, I wonder if I'm going to get it. I'm registered unaffiliated. I wonder if I'll get it. And I vote, I have voted in Democrat and Republican primaries over the years. Sometimes I walk in as an unaffiliated. They're like, which ballot would you like? And I say, surprise me. <laughs> so, I, literally, I do. All right, that is a wrap for the episode. And uh, Brett Winterbull coming up next on News Talk 1110-993-WBT. See you tomorrow. Don't break anything while I'm gone. <laughs>